0: Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As John's vision in the Revelation unfolds, he's given a dramatic view of the Lord himself and an interesting insight into church history. We'll begin to explore the meaning behind some of the symbolism found here as we join Pastor Phil now in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12.
1: In verse 10, John, after he said he was on the island of Patmos, he said, I was in the spirit." On the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I believe that John was taken into the realm of the Spirit and transported, you might say, in time to a place where John was able to see all that he would record later on in this book for us to read and to learn from. But he was in the Spirit. It says, on the Lord's day. That's a reference to Sunday. The early church called the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, they called it the Lord's Day, possibly because every first day of the month was, in the Roman Empire, Emperor's Day. They figured, fine, well, then every Sunday is going to be Lord's Day. (laughs) And so that's when they met. For services, and that was the time, the, the day they called it the Lord's Day, because of course it was the day Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, some people want to translate this, I was taken by the Spirit unto the day of the Lord. And you find that a lot in commentaries and uh, among Bible teachers, they will say to you that the correct Translation that John is trying to get across is, I was taken by the Spirit unto the day of the Lord, the day when God poured His wrath out on the world. Uh, from what I've been able to study and understand, the Greek doesn't really allow for that. Uh, there is a phrase in Greek that uh, if John had put it in that phrase, it would have meant the day of the Lord. And certainly we're going to see John deal with what we consider the day of the Lord, God's judgment upon this world. That's what chapters 6 through 19 are pretty much all about. But here it seems that John is simply saying that it was Sunday and he was probably worshiping God the best way he could. He was on this barren place. Uh, There was a Roman penal colony there, of course, as we said, and John was forced to work in the mine uh, there on Patmos, uh, But there was no church services there. And so John, being an elder, decided that he was just going to spend time just in meditation, probably just drawing close to God on his own. And while he was there just meditating on the Lord, on the goodness of God, even though John found himself in a very unpleasant place, he knew God was using it. As we said in verse 9, John seems to have the indication that he was there for a purpose. And that purpose was to receive revelation from God, uh, the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus, which we know is the book of Revelation. So the Spirit had communicated that to John somehow. And so John was probably just praising the Lord. And suddenly the Spirit took him, in a sense, into the realm of the Spirit. You say, was that bodily? I don't know. I don't know how that works. But the Spirit took him into the realm of the Spirit. And I say transported him in time. That's technically not correct because in the realm of the spirit time doesn't exist you know we live in a four-dimensional universe height width depth and time time is part of this universe that we live in it's a dimension in this realm of the spirit there is no such thing as time so God is outside of time God is in the realm of the spirit and therefore for God everything is happening in the eternal present tense God sees the end from the beginning He sees the creation of the world, he sees the culmination, he sees everything going on right in front of him because he's outside of time. And when God took John on the Lord's day, transported him out of time into the realm of the Spirit, he was able to see probably all in one day. We don't get the indication he was in the realm of the Spirit for weeks or months. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, implying that all of this happened on Sunday. He saw roughly seven years of tribulation period. He saw a thousand years of millennial kingdom. And he even saw out into the eternal realm or the eternal state all in one day. You say, how is that possible? I don't know. But in the realm of the spirit, time doesn't exist really. Time is not a factor. So John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice as a, of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. As we said last time, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And John said he was there on the Isle of Patmos. Suddenly the Spirit took him, and he heard the Lord's voice like the sound of a trumpet. You know, this very loud, clear blast of a voice. It almost startled John. We read later he turns to see who had spoken with such power and clarity. But the idea of being Alpha Omega, A to Z, beginning and end, it it just signifies how that the Lord is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the creator. He is the culminator of all things because he's God. As we said last time, he can begin anything he desires and he will finish everything he starts because he's God. He's all powerful. But I want you to see something here. The, the idea, the title that, uh, that Jesus uses, uh, he said, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. These are clearly titles that go, that are associated in the Old Testament with Yahweh, with the Lord God. In fact, uh, let's look at a few. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. This is kind of interesting to uh, show some of your Jehovah's Witness friends. Take them to Isaiah 41, verse 4, and let them read what it says, where it says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. You say, well, who's speaking there? Well, that's Jehovah. Okay, good. Turn to Isaiah 44, verse 6. And let them read these words. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. Who's that? Well, that's Jehovah God. And his Redeemer. Well, who's that? And they get a little uncomfortable with that. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. We are the first and the last. I am. So you've got two people claiming to be one. You've got Jehovah God and his Redeemer, who we know is Jesus, of course. Claiming to be the same God. How many first and last can you have? There's only one first and one last. So it says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Well, then you take him to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Now we know that John is writing down a vision that he has seen about Jesus Christ. And John said in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, "Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, and guess what? I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore." You got to ask him, "Well, when did Jehovah die? See, now they're really confused, because in the Old Testament, it clearly speaks of Jehovah God. and in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be the first and the last, the one who was dead, but now lives. You ask him, when did Jehovah God die and rose again? The language is the same in Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now, they may want to argue about who this really is. Then take them to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. And once again, show them verse 13, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Ask them, well, who is that? Well, that's Jehovah. Well, they might say it a little more tentatively now because they realize you're setting them up. But, uh, you know, from the language in the Old Testament, comparing verse 13 of Revelation 22 with Isaiah 44, or 46, they have to say it's Jehovah God. Well, verse 16 tells us who's talking. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. In the churches, I am the root and offspring of David the bright and morning star. Those people that claim that Jesus Christ never claimed to be almighty Jehovah God don't know what Jesus said at all about himself. I mean, he went around everywhere claiming equality with God. Claiming that he and the Father were one. And so, yes, he claimed to be God. Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 11 Jesus goes on, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, to Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, to Pergamus, to Thyatira, the church at Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Seven churches. Seven is the number of what in the Bible? Completeness. Seven days in a week makes a complete week. Seven notes in a musical scale makes a complete scale. The idea is seven in the scriptures is always the number of completeness, not holiness. As The dragon has seven heads, okay? I mean, there are things that are completely evil, and there are things that are completely good, like God. But seven is the number of completeness. Now, as we have said, and we'll, we'll touch on this in detail when we get to chapters two and three, but why these seven churches? These were not the biggest or the most influential churches in the known world. What about the church at Jerusalem? Or the church at Antioch? Or the church at Rome? Those were bigger and more influential churches than these seven. Well, the number seven speaks of completeness. Something about these seven churches that Jesus picked purposely because they communicate to us something that's very complete. And here's what they do. They speak to us. They represent all of church history. All the church throughout the history of the church, any kind of church, are represented by these seven. It's a fascinating study that we'll get to in a few weeks as we begin to look at each one of these churches and how they represent a period of time that the church went through or how they even represent different places that we could be in at any given time as Christians in our own walk. It's a very interesting study. But really they speak to us the complete church uh, as a whole throughout history, from the, throughout the church age from Pentecost all the way to the rapture of the church when the church age officially comes to a close. So we'll leave that for when we get to chapters 2 and 3. But uh, verse 12, then John said, after he heard this voice loud, clear like a trumpet blast, he said, I turned to see the voice and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow. The vision of Jesus that John receives here, which he records in verses actually 10 through 18 of chapter 1, is very important. Not the least of which is because when Jesus dictates the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters two and three, which again represent the church throughout the church age, he begins each letter with something from this vision that pertains in some way to how Jesus was, re- was relating to, to that particular church. He takes something from this vision that John sees to open up each letter to these various churches. And it some way signifies how he's relating to each of these churches. Give me an example. Revelation 2, verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That comes out of chapter 1, verses 13 and 16. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That comes out of verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Verse 12 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That comes out of verse 16 in chapter 1. And all seven letters take something. Jesus takes something from the vision. That John sees and uses it to open up each letter to these churches. Understand this as we get into these, that the vision that John has is not literal, it's symbolic. In other words, he, he sees Christ, but he sees him in a symbolic way. I mean, there, are, there have been artists who have tried to paint a picture of Jesus from this description in, in Revelation 1, and honestly, it's grotesque. Because what's in view here is a vision of the glorified Christ in symbolic form, as we'll see. Well, again, verse 12. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. They are golden lampstands, not candlesticks, as the King James translates it they are oil-burning lamps, seven individual golded oil-burning lamps, each having a stand or, excuse me, a base, and then a single stem. And on top there was a cup or a bowl uh, with a wick in it that oil was poured into. And they would use these to light their homes. Each lampstand, fortunately we're not left to try to figure out what these mean because we are told in verse 20 that each lampstand represents One of the churches in Asia Minor. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches, verse 20 tells us. Again, seven is the number of completeness. And so these seven lampstands are representative of all churches. And notice how they are symbolized or represented. They are lamps. This signifies that the church is to be the light of the world, right? They were the light... In their own particular area. They found themselves in great spiritual and moral darkness. That whole, The whole known world before the church was born was plunged into deep darkness. I mean, severe spiritual darkness, moral darkness. And as God brought the gospel to different locations and churches were started, they became a light in the darkness. Very powerful image. Also... They are made of gold. Why? Well, gold, of course, is the most precious metal. And it just goes to show you how God sees his church in this world. In God's eyes, the church, nothing is more glorious, nothing is more valuable or precious to God than his church in this world. The church is the most beautiful and valuable entity on the earth. Now, the earth doesn't think so. The world doesn't think so. But God knows so. It's interesting how the church is being marginalized today. The church is being um, taken out of public discourse. Uh, you know, our, our beliefs in Jesus Christ, somehow we forfeit the right for, to our opinion. We, we should have no uh, discourse in, in, in the public arena because we're Christians. And the church is being more and more marginalized and, 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 and stamped irrelevant as man holds up other things that he considers valuable or worthwhile or whatever. But I like what Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 15. He said, The things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. So, in the eyes of God, there is nothing more valuable in this world than his church. Verse 13, John says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, One was stood like the Son of Man. So in the seven midst of the seven golden lampstands, here we see Jesus in the midst of his church. Well, first of all, it reminds us really of the vision that Daniel had in chapter seven, verse thirteen. Just turn there quickly. Remember we said that Revelation is like a treasure map that takes us all over the Bible, primarily throughout the Old Testament, searching out the meaning of these symbols. And the things that are recorded here. When John says, and in the midst of the seven lambs says, one like the son of man, it's reminiscent of what Daniel saw in his vision in chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Well, again, again. We see a picture here of Jesus in the midst of his church. Remember what Jesus promised before he, went to the, before he ascended back to his father. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And then the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 5, he said, Look, let your, co- let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Jesus is right here tonight with us. You know, he's always with us. He knows when we come to church, we tend to put our best face on, our best foot forward. It's amazing. I think that church parking lots have done more to reform people than any program ever could. Because I don't know how many couples fighting all the way to church, when they hit the church parking lot, suddenly a transformation comes over them. Of course, when you leave this place and go back home, Jesus is still with you. He's always with us. Something to think about. But John said in verse 13, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The first thing that John notices about Jesus was that he was clothed in a robe that reached all the way down to his feet. Now, these robes were quite common. Uh, They were worn quite commonly uh, by kings. And also by prophets. But they were primarily, I think, because the Greek word for robe here. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, done about 270 B.C. About 270 B.C., they, they uh, hired 70 scholars. That's what Septuagint means. Because Hebrew was a dead language. The common la- man's language was Greek at the time. So you got Jews who couldn't even read their own scriptures. Because they didn't speak Hebrew. It was like Latin. It had become a dead language. So they, they uh, hired 70 scholars to translate the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old. We call it the Old Testament. They, they call it their scriptures, of course, to translate the Jewish scriptures into Greek called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, this Greek word is used seven times, six, six of those times. It's used of the robes worn by the high priest. The robes worn by the Jewish high priest. And the fact that John sees Jesus wearing these robes and then girded across the chest with a golden sash kind of reinforces this idea because the high priest wore that kind of sash. In fact, uh, just quickly, turn to Exodus chapter 28. Is God is giving to uh, Israel all the plans for the tabernacle and all the priestly garments, he comes to the garments of the high priest. And in Exodus 28, verse 4, it says, And these are the garments which they shall make. Talking now about the garments of the high priest, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. So we see Jesus dressed in these robes. And I think primarily the robes of his priestly office, that uh, is high priest. But something you ought to understand, in, in Revelation 19, when he comes back to the earth, John notices that he was clothed with a robe dipped in what? Blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, didn't offer a goat or a bull or a lamb for us, He offered Himself as the Lamb of God who took away our sin. He went to the cross. He died. The third day rose again. And then 40 days later, He ascended back to the Father where He sat down at the Father's right hand and He now makes what for us? Intercession. He's making intercession for us as our great high priest. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, verse 14, for by... How many offerings? For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse
0: Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day.